Just let me know if you can see the, the little recording thing. Yep, continue. Awesome. Hello, everyone. Welcome to this episode of Technological. Today, we have a special guest, Kyle, on the podcast. Uh, Kyle went to Georgia Tech with Anish and I. We spent a lot of time in the Kulk going over data structures, trying to get through the like DS and algorithms class and all the random classes we had to do. Uh, after after school, Kyle moved out to San Francisco, and I'm going to let him take it take it away from here and just talk about his experience. So, uh, Kyle, if you could kick us off, you know, just give us a high level background of what you've done, and then we'll just dive deeper into each segment. Yeah, absolutely. So, everyone, my name is Kyle Womb, originally from Atlanta, went to Georgia Tech with Avi and Anish, and um, yeah, studied computer science. And so, uh, while I was in school, I had various internships. So I interned at GE um, Energy Management in like Salem, Virginia. Um, it was a very interesting experience. And after that, I was like, you know, I vowed that I want to be in the Bay Area and like the heart of, you know, tech in Silicon Valley. And so Georgia Tech has a career fair every year, every September. And uh, September 2014, you know, all the big companies are upstairs in the College of Computing at the career fair, and, like the startups are downstairs. So I'm like, let me try to do the startups because the big companies just tell you to apply online. You like spend like an hour and a half, two hours in line and they're like, apply online. I'm like, are you serious? You know, you're missing class and everything. So I saw Twilio and I didn't really know what they were. I looked them up on my phone. They weren't like, you know, a world renowned name as they are today at the time. And so I looked them up while I was in line, was able to finesse an interview, and then I interned there for two summers. And after I graduated Georgia Tech December 2016, I worked at Twilio as a software engineer on the messaging team for uh, about three years. And I've always had like this knack for entrepreneurship, and I wanted to be an entrepreneur. So a friend of mine had this idea for a company um, called Shopper. And what it was is on-demand delivery for clothes. So think like Uber Eats, but for clothes. And it's like pre-COVID, right? So this is like December 2019 timeline. And um, during that time, um, yeah, say for example, you have an event coming up and you don't want to, or you're too busy, you're working, you're like outside, you know, when outside was open, you're doing all these things and you don't have time to actually get an outfit. And so what we would do is go get, you say what you want, we would get an outfit for you. So it's kind of like Uber Eats, Instacart, but for clothes. Um, ultimately, the pandemic happened. Um, we didn't have any funding. We um, we could talk about that, like funding and stuff later, but we didn't have any funding. So ultimately, I left uh, Shopper and we just kind of like, the company just fizzled. And I joined a company called Overflow as the head of technology. Um, and what Overflow does make it super easy for people to donate stock to nonprofits. So that's the high level, but I'm super excited to like dive deeper into each of those segments and uh, share. Yeah, that's great. Um, I, I can resonate with some of those statements, uh, definitely around the entrepreneurial pieces, um, the the software engineering work you did, and the the late night Kulk sessions. As oh, yeah. I myself was a CS major too, grinding it out. Um, but yeah, no, that's that's awesome. It sounds like a little bit of big company to start off with, then slowly sliding down to some startups, yep. um, and then you know flexing your your entrepreneurial muscle and your latest endeavors. Um, so I think you know one topic that that I think we like to to dive into, um, especially for our listeners who are perhaps earlier on in their you know, software engineering career might be, you know, undergrads or, or trying to break into to technology generally. Um, as you kind of went to 
um, you know, the career fair and, you know, you were taking these classes, right? Like, you know, uh, data structures and algorithms, object oriented programming, uh, maybe even some higher level coursework. Um, what was going through your mind? Like, how did you kind of uh, go about figuring out where to work or how to apply these um, things that you were learning in, in like, yeah. a, you know, a company or, or a business environment? Yeah, no, absolutely. So when I was looking, so like I said, my first internship was after my second year. Um, and that was at GE. And getting that first internship is like always the hardest. It's like that paradox. It's like you need experience to get a job, but you need a job to get experience, right? And so, of course, you know, there's like side projects and stuff like that. But that really wasn't me. And like in college, I was very involved in like other like organizations like National Society of Black Engineers and a couple other things. So I didn't really have like, you know, that, that experience. So when I was a freshman through Nesby, uh, that's the short, that's the acronym for National Society of Black Engineers, uh, we would have different companies come, and one of them was GE, and I kept in touch with the recruiter, and I didn't get it that uh, my freshman year, I had just applied, I didn't apply too late, but all the spots were just already filled up, so it was, I stayed in touch with her, and of course, like, I was looking for other opportunities, um, I would, like, during the College of Computing Career Fair, you know, all the big companies are there, Microsoft, Google, Facebook, Apple, the company, all these companies you can name, they're there, which I also realized not every school gets that. So I'm like, dang, it's dope that Georgia Tech has that. And so, you know, I'd, I would go to those. I would uh, apply online. I would stand in lines. I would apply online. And I would actually sometimes I would do like they would have like a hacker rank or there would be like a on campus interview. And I would like bomb those um, just because I, I bombed so many interviews. And it's just because like one, I started off what I forgot to mention, actually, is I actually started off as computer engineering. I didn't switch to CS until my second semester of uh, my second year of at Georgia Tech. And so like, I didn't really know, like I hadn't taken uh, object-oriented programming, uh, which is CS 1331 at Georgia Tech, I hadn't taken data structures and algorithms. So I like bombed all those interviews. So GE was kind of like the only thing I had. So I'm like, you know what, I'll take it. It's a summer gig, um, you know, I can get some experience, make some money. So I did that. It was like, in, like I said, in Salem, Virginia, very small town. Um, and like the project I was working on, like GE is like this, you know, huge, massive company. And I was just working on like this dashboard project that like really probably never even saw the day of the light of day. And I was like, okay, so, but I got the experience, you know, I got something to put on my resume. And so once, you know, the career fair came back around, I just like, I really thought about it from a peer um kind of strategy standpoint, like how can I optimize the number of companies I talked to at the career fair? And so that's why I kind of opted for startups. And then of course I heard about all these, you know, hot startups at the time um, and like different hackathons. And a lot of the startups were like sponsoring these hackathons. I didn't go to them, but I would like hear about them. I had friends in like the startup scene and I'm like, this, this sounds really fun. And so that's what kind of um, inspired me to want to go to do startups versus like big company. And so Twilio, like when I joined Twilio, they were probably like Series C company, but they weren't really known though. So they were like Series C, but they weren't like a huge like household name uh, tech company. Mm -hmm. But that makes sense. And Twilio really grew, right? I think. Yeah. Were you there when they went public? Yes, yeah, so I was they... interning that summer. They went public. They went, So I interned in oh, wow. 2015 and they were private still. And then 2016, uh, they went public that summer. 
Yeah. So how is, we're curious to learn more about the interview process with Twilio. So we did an episode actually uh, a couple episodes ago where we talked about like interview process at Microsoft and you like some of the bigger tech firms, but we'd love to shed some light, you know, on interviews at like, like you said, like a series C company and like some of these like private startups and um, see if there's any like any differences there as well. So. Yeah. So what the process was like with me and like Twilio was still early on, they were like just now, or at the time they were just kind of, they had an internship program, but I think university recruiting for them, like their university recruiting department was just all over the place. So they told me they wanted to interview me. I did an on-campus interview um, and and one it was at the Georgia Tech Hotel actually. They had like rented um, like a conference room in the Georgia Tech Conference Center Hotel. And uh, I had the interview and that interview was pretty straightforward. I want to say they asked me to like reverse a string or something like that. You know, pretty simple, uh, at least in retro, like now I'm like, you know, I can do that in my sleep. Um, but at the time, it probably may, it may have been difficult. And, you know, you have to think about what language you want to use. And generally, I would do it in Java because since I since I switched my major from computer engineering to CS, I didn't have to take the intro CS class, which is in Python. So I didn't even know Python. So everything I did, I interviewed in Java. And so they asked me that question, you know, it was a piece of cake. And then they, um, they were like, okay, we want to move forward. But they never followed up with me. <laughs> and so I had to like keep hunting them down. I had the, the university recruiter's email and I kept emailing her and she was like, okay, we'll you know, set up an interview with, an, um, with someone on the team. And so then they did a, a phone screen with me. Like this is like months later, but they did a phone screen with me. I'm glad they didn't, I was persistent too. So they did the phone screen and it was another kind of coding question. We were on coder pad. So, you know, they asked me the question, they can see me typing. And um, the question that the guy asked me, he was like the tech lead on the team. It was a question like, if you have, you know, an array of integers, can you tell me like how many are duplicates? And so this is like, you know, your your standard like hash map, uh, your hash map question. And so I was able to do that. And at the time, you know, by this time I had taken, since they delayed the interview was actually great because I had already taken 1332 or I was in the middle of taking it. And so that was actually very helpful. So I did that interview. And then the last interview was one with the uh, hiring manager. And I want to say he asked me another technical question. I don't, I don't quite remember, but that's kind of what it was. So it was like the on-campus interview and then two phone screens. But for full-time, what they usually do, and like when I was actually going for full-time roles, I had the offer from Twilio. They don't make you interview again, like after the internship, if you like done well, um, they will give you a return offer. But I wanted to like, you know, one for negotiability, right? I wanted to get another offer because that's that's the best way to negotiate is when you have another offer. And so I had interviewed at Apple and Apple, um, I did an on-site interview at Apple's campus. And it was like a series of um, like four interviews. And they asked some like really like technical questions, like dynamic programming questions. And I thought I like, I thought I bombed it, but I got an offer. Uh, <laughs> but ultimately I, I, I really liked Twilio. I liked how like, how transparent the company was and like with Apple, I find, you know, you people in Apple you can't really say what you're working on. And I didn't really like that. I loved like how transparent Twilio was. So that's why I ultimately decided it, but that's kind of like a lens into um, what that interview process looked like. Yeah, that's great. Um, very helpful for, for illustrating that out, I think. And, and thanks for, yeah, comparing it to, to Apple. I mean, just to kind of expand on that, and I don't know if, if there is much uh, more to add, but maybe maybe you, you do have some perspective on this. But like, 
do you think there's a difference between in Twilio you mentioned was, was I guess series C at the time. So not yeah. like a 10 person, you know, 50 person garage, you know, startup, but they, they knew what they were doing, but not the, the size of like your beast of uh, Apple. Right. Right. Um, do you think there's any differences between how you would, you would interview or approach an interview of a Apple or a Microsoft or a Google versus um, Twilio or other startups in that realm? And then I'm sure we can get into um, the, the small guys, especially now that you're, you're yeah. taking on these entrepreneurial efforts, but we can, we can approach that maybe later. Yeah. So I was actually talking to a friend about this very recently. Uh, he had been interviewing, uh, he worked at Uber and he, he was uh, interviewing with different companies and um, he pretty much was saying, and I haven't interviewed in a while to be completely honest, like me personally, I've done, I've like performed interviews for people, but I haven't actually interviewed. But the analogy he made, he was like startups. They just really want to find people that can code and get to work. There's just so much to build. And then, you know, with like bigger companies, they really want to see like how smart or how much, you know, and they really test you. And so I do find that, you know, interviewing as startups is still like challenging because, you know, you still want to find quality people and people that, you know, can be um, that can work fast, but also with quality. Um, so it's like, you know, kind of like we need bodies on this. Like, can we can we do it? Whereas with big companies, it's more so like, you know, they I find there's a lot more theory um, that they ask in those questions or like it's more like, you know, data structures and algorithms like intense, um, not like the simple stuff, but more so like the more um difficult things like the like the difficult leak code questions <laughs> yeah it, it definitely seems like at bigger companies since they get so many applicants too they yeah. just use these to like weed out people that like do you know how to have you taken cs classes do you understand like what you said the theory behind like the cs Can you reverse a doubly linked list <laughs> yeah yeah exactly what you learn in like school right like what you exactly. have to code for your projects and then like startups, definitely a lot more on like the hacker side where can you just put this together, get a product out and ship it. Exactly. Um, so it's, that's definitely like interesting to like hear about. So like I, I kind of want to also jump now into like your professional career and talk about, you know, like your time at Twilio. Yeah. Um, and just like learn more about that, too, because you are still joining like a relatively like new company, right? Like even though oh, yeah, we're C stage. Yeah. Yeah. So like you join at the C, but then when you joined full time, you joined when they were like had just yeah, we were, right? uh, at Twilio. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. No, yeah. Twilio had just IPO. Yeah, the current company I'm at is a C stage. But yeah, when I joined Twilio, they had just IPO'd. Yeah, full time. Mm -hmm. uh, okay, yeah. Full time, yeah. So still like very early in like, yeah. you know, like a company's like lifespan, right? So I'm like oh, yeah. really curious to hear, you know, like how was it joining a company that had just IPO'd? You know, you have all this momentum. So learning more about like the culture at Twilio when you were there and then also diving into like what your day-to-day -day responsibilities were and like how you kind of grew as a software engineer as like at your time at Twilio. Yeah. Yeah. No, it was actually really exciting. Like going to Twilio, you know, Twilio being public. I remember when I first interned, it was definitely like one of those, you know, work hard, play hard, like, you know, different, you know, fun stuff, like fun stuff happening, fun company. It's still a fun company, but you know, as you go public and you become a public company, when it comes to like budget, you know, the books are open now. And so, you know, investors want their returns. So there was definitely less, um, it became a little bit more corporate um, as time went on, but it was still a great experience. And there's still like, you know, that's, I feel like Twilio still has that kind of startup mentality. 
Uh, but when I was there, I was on the messaging team. And so uh, for those that don't know what Twilio do, it's a cloud communications API. Um, so they have one for messaging, one for voice, video. They have a whole bunch of products. They just acquired, they acquired SendGrid, the email company, as well as um, Segment, which is like the data platform. But what the messaging, so you, you everyone has, at this point has definitely interacted with Twilio, whether it's been those election text messages, you know, people build on top of Twilio to communicate with their customers and their audience. And so I was on the messaging team and I was doing more front end work on the team. So uh, we had a messaging console and what the messaging console was, was where people say, for example, you're a company that uses Twilio um, and say you have like an administrator or even developers would use the console as well. But it's a, it's a place for you to see like, like your message logs. Um, you can like configure certain settings like, hey, I want to be able to send messages internationally. It was just like that place. And all this stuff could be done uh, via an API. Uh, via the API, because Twilio was like one of these API first companies, uh, but the messaging console was just kind of like that supplement. And so that's what I worked on. Essentially, I interned on the messaging team and the team was really fun. And, and messaging at the time, I'm pretty sure it still is, is Twilio's number one business unit um, when it comes to revenue. So that was like, you know, really exciting to be on like the, the revenue generating product. Um, and so while I was there, it was really different, you know, especially coming from school, because in school, you know, you have a project and most times, especially in classes, it's kind of like cookie cutter, the parameters are set. But while, um, you know, being a full-time software engineer, there's ambiguity, right? And you have to be able to, you know, deal with that ambiguity and like solve these and solve these problems. And so there was that also like working with production ready code. So, when, you know, they taught us about tests in school, but like, you know, when you're working on a project, you kind of just like manually test if it worked, but you know, automated testing was huge. And so, you know, as I was like maturing as an engineer, um, the things I really needed to develop were like, you know, having that ownership, right? And so at a certain point in time, I was actually the only person that worked on the specific service that I worked on. Um, and so it was, you know, from like planning to actually implementing. And so that was like really cool to see. And it's definitely helped me in my like current role. Um, so that, um, you know, and I had, when I first joined Twilio, I actually had this uh, guy that was the tech lead on my team. And I remember every time I would submit code and uh, open up a pull request, he would just like tear my my PR to shreds. Uh, it's like kind of, I kind of think about like the teacher that puts like all the red marks on your paper. That's how I felt. But it really like made me grow as a software engineer and allowed me to, you know, write better code. And just even like reading his code um, was great. So that was kind of like my experience um, while there. And like some of the things that we shipped was like Twilio for WhatsApp. And so, uh, or yeah, Twilio for WhatsApp. And so previously before that, you can only send like SMS messages. But as we know, like outside of the US, especially like so many people use WhatsApp and they have so many users. And so that was one of the projects, you know, that I worked on while I was there that I'm like, you know, really proud of. That's awesome. And uh, yeah, thanks for giving us, I think, a high level overview of of what Twilio is. Yeah. Um, it's it's a pretty I mean, I guess at least for for me and, and Avi and others who are reading up on these things, but um it's become a, a slightly larger household name uh, because it, it provides so much of that um, messaging and voice and, and uh, communication very easily for, for developers, right? Or anyone trying to build, build an application with that use case. Um, that's great. So do you mind like going into a little bit more detail around, you know, 
Um, so maybe, you know, you came in as, as a software engineer, right. And, and then yep. ultimately got, uh, promoted up to software engineer too. Yep. Um, so in, in your, you know, uh, entry level role, um, as a software engineer, how much time, you know, would you say, you know, as you're working on this, this messaging component, um, was spent coding versus, you know, potentially thinking through like, if you did this at all, like, you know, technical architecture or, um, you know, talking to uh, users or, or dealing with bugs or, um, you know, being in agile ceremonies or, or sprint grooming, right. Or, or yeah. refinement, right. All of those things, like, you know, do you mind just kind of maybe structuring yeah. that and telling us a little bit more about, about those processes? Yeah, generally, yeah, exactly. So generally what we would do is we would uh, use uh, Agile. So we have two-week sprints. We had a product manager and, you know, we, we try to have the two pizza team as they call it. So um, it's about, I want to say like eight people on the team. It's like the amount of people that can eat two pizzas. Like no, if you have more people than that, you want to split it. So that's kind of like the team. Um, and so you'd have like a tech lead on the team and, um, sometimes they would split the teams to, you know, front and back end. Sometimes the teams were based off of like the actual product, right? Um, so, and it, there was a lot of like t- um, team splits and like reorgs that happened. But what generally we would do sprint planning um, like on a Friday for the upcoming two week sprint. And then, especially as a software engineer, one, um, it was just me like working on just tickets, right, or a task on our on our sprint board. So like that was me. I was just essentially just coding all the time. So that was like uh, me. And then as I was, you know, leveling up, my manager was like, in order to, you know, get to this next uh, step, which would be software engineer two, um, it requires like taking on ownership. Uh, So that's when I started like, and this is stuff, you know, I didn't really know coming out of school. So that's when it started coming, like, you know, creating design documents and, you know, about when it comes to like technical architecture and like uh, implementing and designing that stuff. So that's what as I progressed from software engineer, like the later stages of me being a software engineer one is when I started like doing more of those things and, you know, being able to present to the team, like why we should use a certain technology or do something a certain way um, versus the other way. So that was actually really useful. And it really made me like the subject matter expert, especially as like people would come to my team, leave my team. Like I said, at one point I was like the only person working on it. And so I really had like a depth of knowledge of like what I was working on. And so whenever people had questions, like I was the guy. And so that was, um, that was really valuable. And that was actually one of those things that I think boosted me in my career. And that's something that mentors have told me too, like becoming the subject matter expert. But one thing I never wanted to do was just get pigeonholed into that one thing though. You know, I feel like that's also um, like a career risk as well. Yeah, I definitely agree. I mean, it's such a balance, right? With figuring out like, I really want to dive deep into this one area and get good at this one thing, but this is not what I want to do for the rest of my life. Yeah. You kind of like balance the two and make sure like, okay, I'm going to grow my career, but I want to say general enough where I don't get stuck in one area. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And I think that's really important for like a lot of our listeners too, is like, yes, like you'll be working on like a specific product or function when you first start, but get really good at it and you can still grow after that. Just don't worry that you're just going to get pigeonholed in that one area because you're just starting off your career and, you know, you have so much of your career left. Right. So, um, I think that's also like a good segue point for us to kind of talk about, you know, your entrepreneurial itch and, you know, what, what pushed you to start Shopper and, you know, just kind of walk us through like your mindset when you were starting Shopper and then maybe like leaving Twilio, were you doing it at the same time and how you thought about 
taking taking that risk right because it is like you're going from stable income to like not so stable income you're building a product from the ground up so just would love just take us from like the ground level like your thought process and how you did it yeah so there was a time where like pretty much when I was at Twilio I felt that I was plateauing um you know I could have switched teams and like this kind of goes back to the previous question like I felt like I knew everything I needed to know and like the work I was doing was just very easy to do. I wasn't like stimulated or like challenged. And so of course I could have switched teams or done other stuff, but I've always wanted to do entrepreneurship. And I knew if I switched teams, there's always that like uh, that ramp up period, right? Where you have to like do, where you have to like learn the new, you know, whatever the team they're working on, learn their services, um, their code base. And I was like, that's going to be a lot. And I always wanted to do entrepreneurship. And so I was thinking about what my next thing was, but I never really, I didn't really like, I'm like, when do I jump, right? That's the big question is like, when do you jump? And I, I've always wanted to do it. And I'm like, if not now, then when? Um, but before I did it, like I had a friend, um, she's actually from Atlanta, but we met in the Bay Area. And she was telling me about this idea of um, pretty much shopper, her and her college roommate, they went to Clayton State, actually, Clayton State University. And they had this idea for shopper and they would hit me up all the time about technical questions, like how can I scrape all these listings off of, you know, a website? And so I would like help them on the side just for fun. And then she's like, you know, we're gonna apply to YC and Y, which is Y Combinator, one of the most renowned accelerators that you know a lot of big companies like Dropbox, Airbnb went through. But she was like, we're gonna apply to YC and do all this. And I was just, you know, getting really excited. And she was like, I'm applying to YC, like coming up. And I know with Y Combinator, they want all the founders to be full time. And so she was full time at the time um, working on it. And I was like, okay, you know, I think this is actually a really cool idea. This is something I could commit to. So practically, what I did was I waited until the next vest, um, which was stock vest, uh, essentially, because with Twilio, you vest quarterly. I know at some companies, after the one-year cliff, you vest monthly, but with Twilio, you vest quarterly. So I'm like, you know, let me not be stupid here, especially when we, you know, didn't have funding and stuff like that. So we ultimately applied to Y Combinator. Uh, we got an interview, um, which was actually really cool. And like, you know, this is pre-COVID, so we got to go down to the Y, Combin- uh, the y Combinator office in Mountain View. And we actually interviewed and it's a 10 minute interview. It goes by really fast. Um, they ask you like all these different questions. It's like four of them, like four of the partners at YC. Um, and it was like our team, the three of us. And it was just like, you know, they just essentially are trying to find all the loopholes in your business or not find all the loopholes, but they want to see what your business is, right? You know, is this a sustainable business? And, you know, they really want to know like the why, like, why do you think this is a business? Because YC's model is like um, build something that people want. And so they're like, how do you know? Because originally when we had Shopper, we were like, get these items in less than two hours. And one thing that uh, Michael Seibel, who's the CEO of Y Combinator, he, he was one of our interviewers. He was like, how do you know people want this in two hours? Like, how do you know? And what they really wanted to hear was like, you know, customer, like that you've talked to customers or, or potential customers and that they, you know, want to do this. So ultimately we didn't get into YC, which was a huge bummer for us. Um, but, you know, Going forward, we were just like, all right, we're going to still work on this. Um, but as we're working on this, one of the co-founders was like, hey, because she had been working on it full time for some time, like a few months at this point. And she was like, hey, since we didn't get the YC funding, she was just like, I need I just got a job. And I was just like, oh, man, you know, that was kind of like because I was going to because the plan was that we would all be full time. 
And I was actually about to put in my notice to Tulia, but I'm like, okay. But she was like, you know, we can still work on this. Um, I'm like, okay. And so I'm like, I planned on going full time just because I felt like I had reached my reached the end of my time at Tulio. Um, so I'm like, you know, I still think this could be a big, this is a big idea and this could be something big. And so I ultimately put in my notice to Tulio like right after Thanksgiving 2019. Um, and I ended up staying like, a, instead of like two weeks, I ended up staying like a month for like transitioning and stuff like that. So my last day, I remember December 19th, 2019. And that's kind of like when I started working on Shopper full time. And so like we would meet, uh, we would have like uh, what we would do like to, to essentially test out the idea of Shopper, we created a, a landing page, uh, which was pretty much just, it will take you to a type form and it'll ask you different questions. And it'll be like, hey, what items do you want um, to get? And we would pretty much send it to our friends to have them try it out. And we were the ones actually going to the mall to get it. And here's some context here. I don't have a car in San Francisco. <laughs> and so um, so sometimes it was like my co-founder, they would go get the stuff because like they had cars or it would be me like riding BART, which is like the public transit, like to a mall whenever like someone wants something. But we found that like, you know, that wasn't really sustainable. So this is like probably like January, February, pre-COVID. And then we switched the model. We were like, okay, what's another problem? Because we felt like the on-demand thing wasn't a huge issue for people. Um, at that time. And I think it still could be, a, I still think it's a big opportunity. Um, but what we ended up switching to was this whole try before you buy model, because we were like, okay, returns is big. Returns is where, you know, people, they'll buy something and either they're just too lazy to return it. And then, you know, the window, the 30 day, 60 day, however long it is, that window ends, and then, you know, they're out of their money. Or they, they do return it, but stores are so slow, you don't get your money back until a month later. And so we were like, what if we could try this whole like um, try before you buy business model where people would tell us the items that they want to purchase. And then um, they don't have to, they don't have to pay for it upfront. We would essentially float it for them and then they can try it. We would like ship it to them and then they could try it on within like a day or however many, I think like one to two days because you know you don't want people to wear the clothes out like a night out to the club and then try to return it but if they wanted to keep it they could keep it but otherwise they would um so the, the way the business model worked is they would pay us like a fee and we were just starting off to test it we would say five dollars this try before you buy this is like non-refundable but this is the deposit that assures you that you could we would float the clothes for you you can try them on and if you want to return them you're not out of your money, right? You didn't have to pay anything but that $5. Um, but if you want to keep it, it's like, great, the clothes fit, cool, but we still made the $5. So that was the business model. So we tried that out with a few people, but then COVID hit and, you know, people were getting laid off and it was just a really hard time. And so ultimately we decided that this wasn't a good time to pursue shopper because like people at the time weren't spending money on clothes and stuff like that. And so we shut it down. But during that time, I actually was part of a program called On Deck. Um, I'm not sure if y'all have heard of it, but it's a fellowship program for founders. They've actually expanded it. They have like multiple fellowships now. They have like a no-code fellowship. They have a um, angel investor fellowship, but I was doing their founder fellowship. A guy that I met at, he was like a pastor at a church that I went to in SF. He told me about this fellowship because he did it in On Deck. He was in their, he was in On Deck's cohort before me. So he was in On Deck's second cohort and I was in their third. And so midway through it, he was working on overflow. And so, um, so I was working on Shopper at the time, he was working on overflow. 
and he was interviewing for YC and he reached out to get kind of like some some tips on the interview. So I gave him some tips and then ultimately he didn't get into YC. Uh, we reconnected and at this time I had left Shopper. So this is like April timeframe. And when I, I left Shopper, oh, go ahead. I know you're like on a roll, but I just want to kind of bring it back to like Shopper itself. So like after you left Twilio and joined Shopper full time and you're like, unfortunately YC didn't work out. Were you guys pursuing fundraising at, at that time too for Shopper? Or was it kind of just like you made that jump and it's like, I have enough cash burn right now to kind of like ride it out until I feel that we need to like raise, raise a round or like probably like a seed or angel round. I'm just curious, like were yeah. you guys, like how were you guys funding the business at that time? And yeah, at that time it was literally personal out of our pockets. And so like, you know, with, with that last best, I essentially cashed it out. I was like, you know, this is going to be my living expenses for the year. And it was $50,000. I'm like, you know, this is going to be my living expenses for the year. Um, especially, and that's gonna, that was going to be a frugal lifestyle too, because rent in the Bay Area is crazy. Um, so that was going to be a frugal lifestyle. And we wanted to look for funding. So we're looking at different accelerators, applying to different accelerators. So we're, we were doing that. But then like, this is like right when COVID hit. And so um, right when COVID hit, things just kind of paused and like you know one of the co-founders she wanted to take a step back and i was just like you know i can't do this by myself it just, it just would have been a lot of work and i didn't think that we were the right team to do it but we were pursuing funding so after yc we were still trying to like pr uh, pursue funding find accelerators but ultimately um we, we didn't get anything uh, we didn't apply to a whole lot of a whole lot of things and especially with accelerators it's one of those things where um, it's, it's seasonal, right? So applications are open at a certain time, they close at a certain time. So you have to be at the right time when you're applying. And the other approach we could have taken was like angel investors, but like, I really didn't know a lot of like people like in my network. Now I know quite a few angel investors, but at the time I didn't really know, you know, angel investors that would like, you know, invest, personally invest their own money into this endeavor. So at the time it was just like us out of our own pocket. Bootstrapping is is the way to go, I, I guess, if you can. Uh, yeah. For, for only so long, though. Um, yeah. But, you yeah, know, it's awesome. It sounds like leaving Twilio was a combination of, you know, you feeling like you needed to kind of just get stimulated again. Yeah. Wanted to, to kind of jump into something new um, and a combination of that, right, entrepreneurial itch. And, and it sounded like a cool problem to work on. Yeah. Um, no, that that's great, and and I think yeah, let's let's continue on with that that story of then how you how you got into overflow and how um, you know COVID kind of impacted uh, <laughs> yeah. the the market research and user validation you guys were doing over over Shopper. Yeah, so yeah, that pretty much yeah that happened. COVID happened, and then you know one of the founders, the job that she had gotten was a contract job, and so it ended right before right like right when COVID hit. And then, you know, she was looking for other opportunities. She was like, you know, I just need to take a step back. And I, I totally respect it. It was, you know, it was definitely a, a, in the moment an unfortunate blow. I'm like, dang, like, I'm really, you know, I'm, I'm two feet in, right? You know, I wasn't like one foot in and one foot out. I was two foot, two feet in. And so that was a really tough situation. And so I was, and I gave myself kind of like a timeline to where we, we should have at least, this is like a personal thing I, I had set up uh, for myself. I was like, you know, uh, by April, I think it was originally March, but then I, I expanded it to April when COVID happened. And I was like, you know, I'm going to give myself this much time to see if we can at least get some initial traction, right? 
And, you know, if we can't, then I'm gonna, I have to, I have to step away from it just because like, you know, I was using my personal money and I was like, if everyone's not all in on this, then I can't, you know, be all in on this. So ultimately I walked away around April timeframe and I didn't have anything lined up at the time either. Uh, I was thinking like, you know, do I want to do like some freelance work on the side? Do I want to go back to Twilio? My pride wouldn't let me, uh, <laughs> but I was like, do I want to go back to, uh, to Twilio? All these things. And Twilio is a great company. And, and then, you know, seeing, especially later, like in 2020, seeing Twilio stock soar during the pandemic, I was just like, oh man, like tripled for, uh, from the time I left. I'm like, did I make the right decision? And so I was just like thinking, uh, I took some, like a few weeks off, just like, you know, what do I want to do next? And that's when Vance and I reconnected. So he had, you know, referred me to this on deck fellowship. He was in the cohort before me um, and he was interviewing for YC. Uh, so I was like giving him some tips and then ultimately he didn't get in. And he said, you know, he really needed a technical like partner, like head of technology or like kind of co-founder level. But he had been doing it for some time already. And he had already de-risked the business. He had already had like, you know, five hires, like two engineers, a sales, um, you know, pretty much a business development representative. Um, and, you know, a, he had raised a, a bit of angel money, about 600K in angel money. And so um, he was just like, hey, I need like a technical partner. I think, you know, you'll be a great fit. And I've like worked with him in the past, like not in like, you know, actual work capacity, but like through church and stuff like that. And I'm like, okay, like he's a great leader. Um, he's driven. And that's kind of like how he had the idea for Overflow. And so what Overflow is, is a, um, like I said earlier, well, in my intro, we make it super easy for nonprofits to receive stock donations and for people to give stock donations. So if you want to donate stock like today, the way it works is there's like you have to go and get like this paper form and fill out this stuff. You have to ask the nonprofit you're giving to their DTC number and their account number. DTC number is kind of like a routing number if you if we are if we make the parallels to checking accounts. And then you have to either fax or mail that document to the brokerage. And like, I'm like, wow, it's 2021, or it's at the time it was 2020, that's very antiquated. And so at the church vibe, they actually have a, they're based in Palo Alto. They have a, what's called a vision gala every uh, November. And a bunch of people that go to the church are in tech. They go to, they work at like Tesla, Facebook. And what they wanted to give stock, because donating stock is actually one of the most, uh, tax efficient way to give uh, because you're able to one offset capital gains tax um, and then two when you're giving stock um, you can it's generally a, people give more um, when they're giving stock and so you're able to get you know a higher tax deduction and so um, that was the idea and one one of the years I actually cashed out Twilio stock to give and that was really bad because when I cashed out the stock I'm, I was uh, subject to capital gains tax. Whereas if you give the stock in kind, you know, just transfer the stock, you don't have, you don't actually have, you know, capital gains tax and the organization actually makes more money because it's not the money less the taxes. And so um, he had the idea for overflow. He had been working on it and I thought it was a cool idea, um, especially since I had actually experienced it before. And so I joined the team uh, back in May. I was like the sixth person on the team. Uh, I joined as the head of technology, and at the time we had like a, um, we had, a, we had like a, we had a working product, but you know we've definitely like uh, refined it a lot more uh, since then, and so now we have we, so I guess the business model I don't think I've mentioned that either. The way it works is the nonprofits are actually our customers, so um, the nonprofits today because it's a lot of work on their end too, and they have to do something called. Um, 
a charitable acknowledgement letter. And so what that means is whenever someone gives, they have to like send them a letter saying this person gave. So when the person files their taxes, they can like provide all that information to like their CPA. So pretty much um, with overflow, we make we provide like all the back office stuff for the nonprofits to do that. And we make it like a, we have like a really cool UI that lets the donors give. So that I'll, I'll stop there and I don't want to like keep going, but I'll let you all ask. <laughs> Yeah, definitely. That sounds, I didn't even know you could give stock as donation, frankly. Yeah, like, a lot of people I don't know that. Yeah. No idea. Um, just so I can understand the product a little better. It's like the nonprofits use your backend function and that way they can receive the stock from the user. Yeah. So, so how, oh, go is ahead. it going to like APIs that you're building for the nonprofit itself or? Yeah. So right now it's actually it's simply a button right and so we it's like a paypal button but we call it, it's the overflow button and so what they would do is embed it on their website uh, we send them like a little html tag to embed on their website and it takes them to their own custom overflow page and so what if i'm a donor and i'm going and i'm on their website and they see oh donate stock with overflow because previously it'll say reach out if you're interested in donating stock uh, reach out to, you know, Red Cross at Stock Gifts or Stock Gifts at RedCross.org. And it's like, oh, and then that's it's like this whole back and forth process. And so with us, we have like this give stock with through overflow button and a donor would just click the button. It goes to that nonprofit's branded overflow page. And then the donor just goes through in a few steps and they connect their brokerage. We use Plaid to connect the brokerage account. And um, they see the broke, they see their securities that they want to give. They select it they sign and then um, from there we've automated it so that um, the transfer happens. Oh wow, that's uh, super, super simplified. Yeah, exactly. It's so much it's easier than like having to fax some document over and you know deal with all like paper and- Yeah, so much friction, man. Yeah, so I'm really curious to hear, number one, what your role is as like uh, the head of technology. And number two, this might be kind of like a naive question, but it, it, does that mean you're like the CTO? Like, is yeah, that yeah. Okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, so yeah. the CTO, I think at, everyone at the company or at like the, I guess, exec level, so to speak, is like head of and but yeah, it's, mm -hmm. it's essentially like analogous to a CTO role. And so my day to day, um, I know when I first started, it was a lot of like, you know, in the weeds coding, and still like, you know, even this week, I was working on some like feature, right, like personally coding, but a lot of it, you know, especially as we're growing, bringing on more engineers, um, my role is, has to become more strategic. Um, and so doing the things that only I can do. So when it comes to like compliance, right, you know, getting, uh, getting all that stuff taken care of, um, planning, uh, design, all these like kind of like strategic high level things, hiring is a big thing. Right. And, you know, when it comes to startups, like hiring, especially at the C stage, like we're C stage startup. So, um, hiring is actually kind of hard because like, you know, like no one really knows who you are and they have to really believe in the company. So those are kind of the things that I'm like starting to shift towards and focus on as opposed to like the day-to-day, -day, like actually coding and stuff like that. Cause I feel like my time is best leveraged when I'm doing like these higher level things. Yeah. I was going to say, just to add on to that, um, you know, again, maybe to go into one of your points you just mentioned yeah. um, two things. So one you know, how would you compare the sort of individual contributor role you might have played over at Twilio 
and then um you know of course i think at, at shopper you guys were probably still in that validation phase on the, on the yeah. user research side but how would you compare twilio as a you know technical contributor to now being you know by name the, the cto or head of technology but also doing all of these other really important tasks to help get the business off the ground and then a uh, second question would be you, you know you just mentioned hiring obviously a huge part of building out building out a company like what are some things uh, you kind of look for in in potential candidates and you know how do you know you know someone's a good fit for for the company yeah no, awesome. Great question. So the first question is like kind of like the comparison of roles. So yeah, I was an individual contributor at Twilio. So for me, like, you know, it was mainly just, you know, we have sprint planning. I do my tickets or if we were working on a new product or a new project, um, you know, being part of like the, the planning process. So I really enjoyed that, you know, and like, I know my managers and like the tech leads when I was at Twilio, I always noticed, and this is like, you know, when we're in person, so I'll be at my desk and like everyone's gone and it's like, oh, they're in like a planning meeting, right? And so um, I was shielded from those meetings, but now, you know, especially being as like, you know, head of technology at Overflow, a lot of my time are in those meetings, like, you know, planning and stuff like that. And I, I, I really try to shield the engineering team uh, from those meetings. Like the only meetings we really have are like, you know, our planning meetings, we do everything else async, especially now, but um, we do like stand-ups through Slack, right? Because I'm like, people don't need to, it, that doesn't need to be synchronous. So um, yeah, a lot of my time now is definitely spent, you know, being those those people like at Twilio, like always in the meetings and stuff like that. But I find when it comes to like developer productivity, um, like, you know, being able to shield them from those meetings is great. And just being able like, to disseminate the information but um, yeah, it's, it's really interesting because I've learned like a lot of the stuff I did at Twilio, um, like the practices where the, like, you know, a lot of the best practices I've brought over to Overflow. Um, so when it comes to like, you know, pull request etiquette and, you know, just trying to groom us to, although we're a startup, you know, we want to be, we want to have, we want to be a mature startup, right? We want to eventually, you know, be series a and and you know just become a bigger company so those are kind of like the things that i i definitely say were valuable and i'm glad that i had that experience at twilio because I, I think had i not you know worked in the industry and i just went straight startup i know there's a lot of people that you know graduate college they just do a startup and i think just seeing how business works was was really helpful for me and so that that's really applicable here and then when it comes to hiring um, some of the things that, you know, I really think about is, uh, can like, you know, it's it's still like the standard, like, you know, can you code? We do an interview process um, and then we have you meet with um, like our head of operations who does like kind of like the culture interview just to see, you know, would you be a good fit essentially uh, with the company? Um, and, you know, what we look for when we hire is like, you know, can you code? Also, like, we want we want to be able to we want to build like a, a humble company um kind of like i know some people especially working at bigger companies coming to a startup um there may be a lot of um a, a big ego right and so we don't want egos like within the company because we think that can just really drive down like the company culture and then like you know the company itself and so we really look for like that humility in people and people who kind of just have like i guess you know there's a lot of people that want to do good in the world so it's really cool like to find software engineers that have a passion for like helping other people and um, you know not helping nonprofits and stuff like that. So those are kind of the things we look for. Um, yeah. 
Yeah, yeah that's great. Um, some really good points there, especially around like building to scale and like setting out like good standardization and good practices for your company itself. Um, so like when you actually do get like lots and lots of traction, you, your code base is able to actually handle all of that, right? Yeah. You're not, like just hacking away, like plugging in like random like holes. This is interesting. I was in consulting and you see like the way they've done a lot of their like database migrations and like how they're going through all of it and like seeing some of the code behind it and like the data, it's just, it, it's such a mess, right? So you really want yeah. to build like a scalable company. And then the other point I think that you made that was really good was like kind of starting at a bigger company and learning business itself, like learning, because they've already done it. They've, they've done like all the trial and error. So you might as well yeah. take their practices and apply it to, you know, your startup and what you do. And I think what you said was really right. It's like a lot of people want to go out and they just want to start a startup and like, you know, like live that lifestyle. But yeah. it's really important to like train yourself and like these big companies that are essentially like a big training ground. Yes, so exactly. I think that's really important. I did have like one, one question really quickly. So this is a yeah. debate that we're having in our group chat right now. It's kind of between like Anish and Saren who unfortunately couldn't join today, but they're kind of arguing about passion from like the engineering side, especially starting at like an early stage company. So Siren's making the argument that a lot of uh, hiring managers, when they're looking at software engineers joining earlier stage companies, they should be like really passionate about the mission and the like the drive of the company. And then Anish is not saying they shouldn't be passionate, but he's saying it's more like, can they get the job done? Can they, can they like do the work? So I would love to hear just, you know, from your, your point of view, being at like an early stage company, what, what you're thinking about this because i think it's funny because they're having a debate so i was like let's settle this right now <laughs> let me also let me add, let me add a little bit of, of clarity here for, for you kyle it, like i also want to distinguish between you know the the size of the company and what companies start to look for right like yeah. at a seed stage company right i think the culture and the problem that you know the problem that you guys are focused on in, in helping these nonprofits if somebody isn't, you know, um, passionate about it, you know, that can be infectious, right. And that can be very, uh, detrimental to, to the company. Whereas, you know, and this is my, my theory, but later down the road for, for, you know, series B, series C, whatever series D company, once they found product market fit, they've able, they've been uh, able to prove that they can scale, you know, as you kind of hire technical talent, um, versus non-technical talent, meaning, you know, sales and marketing or uh, customer facing teams, et cetera, versus engineering, um, technical people, you might be less focused on that sort of, you know, how much do they care about the, the mission and, and the company, which, you know, ideally you want to find anybody that does, but you're more concerned with, you know, how good are they at, uh, how's their software development skills or how's their ability to use different technologies versus um, that, so, yeah, I mean, you'd love to hear, hear your opinion. And yeah. and uh, yeah, I feel like at early stage, especially like where we are, every single person on the team makes a big impact. So right now we're like a team of like 14 people now, but every single person, like every key hire, like, you know, essentially there's no room for dead weight. So everyone has to like, you know, pull their weight. Um, yeah, everyone's critical. I feel like at, you know, bigger companies, there's definitely those people that like, as they call it, rest invest. Um, and so at the at smaller companies, you know, everyone's like putting in the work. So I do, so at, you know, especially at our stage, it's something that I feel like, because 
one, we're still we're still kind of like proving out, you know, our business and stuff like that. And so if you're if you're going to be like spending a lot of hours working on something, I feel like there has to be, you know, at least a bit of passion. You don't have to be like, oh, my gosh, it's like the best thing ever. I feel like especially if you had just heard of a company and you're interviewing, right? You know, you don't really know much about it. I feel like that passion comes as you continue to build and you like see the company flourish. But I think, you know, for us, so it is good, like for people that, you know, really that. So I don't want to use the word passion, but people that align with our mission, right? I think that's a better way to phrase it. Like, you know, people that align with our mission that, you know, think what we're doing is cool. I like that. You know, you don't have to be, you know, passionate about it, but at least, you know, have, you know, a lot of interest in like, you know, you like, I can rock with this. And so I do think that that's important. But then also, the, the, of course, the bigger thing at a startup, you know, you're trying to live to see another day. You know, you don't you don't want to run out of money. And so we definitely want to find someone that can get the job done. But I agree that at bigger companies, at you know, at a certain point, it's not so much about passion. It's more so about like, you know, can this person get the job done? But I do think that passion or alignment is very important at the earlier stages. Awesome. No, that was a great answer. And uh, we're definitely going to go back to Saturn and let him know what you said. So <laughs> thanks for it. Uh, so I think we're, we're definitely reaching the top of the hour and we don't want to hold you too long, but just do you have any closing thoughts or, you know, final advice for like people looking to go into software engineering as well as people looking to pursue, you know, their own business and make that jump into entrepreneurship. So yeah, I would just love to get your like final thoughts on it. So. Yeah, I would say my advice for people looking to, you know, do software engineering would be just to, I think the, the name of the game is practice, right? Especially when it comes to interviewing and landing these big jobs, right? Whether it be like the big tech companies or startups, I would say um, practice is a big thing. Like I said, I bombed so many interviews, uh, but it, just, it was just like, you know, the, the, uh, the repetition as well as, you know, me continuing to study, challenge myself, do mock interviews that, were, that was really helpful. Um, so that's one, that would be one of my um, kind of words of advice for people wanting to go into software engineering. And then for people who are looking to do startups, at least, and I'll, I'll talk about people that are looking to found startups and especially people that are looking to work at startups. I would say if you, if you want to found a startup, one thing I think you have to have deep conviction in what you're doing, right? Um, building startups. And I was naive too when I first left Twilio to like go into this. I, I didn't think building a startup was actually this hard, but it's, it's actually, you know, a lot of work when it comes to, you know, you're, you have to sell, right? You have to get the money somehow, uh, but you also have to be able to build a solid product. And there's just like so much that goes into it. So whatever you're, if you're like thinking about pursuing an idea, make sure it's something that, you know, you're deeply convicted about. And I don't think I had that deep conviction about Shopper. So I would, um, that's something. And then for people that are looking to work at startups, I would say, like, you know, there's so many startups out there and um, it's, it's startups are always looking to hire um, solid people. But make sure you find a startup that kind of like aligns with you, aligns with your values and something that you can see actually like, you know, growing and there's like a, a, a need in the market. So um, that's kind of like my my advice for the day. Yeah, that's 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 great advice. Um... And I think, especially for, for those that are, um, you know, trying to potentially take that uh, leap from, you know, a, maybe a bigger company to, to a startup or to take on that entrepreneurial role. Um, and I think you kind of alluded to it, right? And I think the term is called uh, maybe entrepreneur market fit. 
or entrepreneur. Yeah, founder, founder market fit. fit. Yeah, I've heard founder, of that. Founder market yeah. fit. Exactly. And I believe it's the idea that, you know, it's a problem that you care so deeply about that you're, you're so um, interested in, in wanting to set out and solve. And that's when you say, okay, well, I'm going to go and you know, work on trying to come up with a solution to this problem. And that's why, you know, a lot of uh, entrepreneurs seemingly succeed because they are so deeply invested in that um, space. Um, but yeah, um, I think just to kind of kind of close things out, this was uh, this was great. We we really enjoyed you you kind of coming on here and talking about your vast experience from uh, big company to small, but now big company, and then and then your entrepreneurial journeys. And um, if you know if you're hiring, of course uh, we can we can share share the link to to your company and. Um, yeah, we'll, we'll we'd love to dive in potentially another point uh, later down the road as well. Yeah, no, absolutely. Thanks for having me. It was super dope chatting with you, Avi and Anish. Um, so thanks for having me. Yeah, it was great having you. Thanks, Kyle. All right, I'm going to stop.